out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the guitarist Kevin Armstrong, who I spoke to very, very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Kevin Armstrong, famous for lots of reasons, including working with David Bowie, Tin Machine, Paul McCartney, Iggy Pop and um, Morrissey. But there's lots more besides. Also, he's just brought a book out which is titled Absolute Beginner, Memoirs of the World's Best Least Known Guitarist, available from all the bookshops and also online. So anyway, this is the interview. You'll hear lots more about his life, the book, and everything else in between. Anyway, so look, after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, it was very interesting. Um, we get down to the exciting subject that was the early formative years. Kevin, it's over to you. I'm a little older than you. I'm 66. So um, my early thing was uh, my early uh, uh, early thing was um, Motown, really, and the Beatles, early Beatles. That was the first thing that caught my ear, you know. Yes. Uh, yeah. So then, 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 of course, the glam thing was. I was a teenager by then, an early teenager, or you know. So, so I was uh, really ready to to soak all that up by the time that came. But before then, it was just the the birth of radio, wasn't it? Radio One started. I remember the very first. I think I mentioned it in the book. I remember the very first record ever played on Radio One, and before then, it was just Luxembourg and those pirate ships. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so I listened to yeah, I listened to a lot of Motown. Uh, that that caught my ear just from the songwriting point of view. It was so striking the, the great songs of, of you know. This is quite interesting because I was I was very much that indie kid. I was a bit too young for punk, but you you kind of straddled the kind of interesting period in the seventies, weren't you? You were a bit too musical for punk and a bit too you know musical for well, yeah, i go into that in the book because i i felt punk was a sort of retrograde step musically from what i'd soaked up and learned as a as a player till then and what it, it, it definitely was a case you had to be slightly in the closet as a musician at that time because it was uncool to know anything <laughs> yes so, uh well I, and i understood that i understood that you know uh, the old the old had to be overthrown for the new uh, but it was something of an adjustment for me for sure yeah yes and then when you kind of got to that age of 16 where do you go from there did you leave school at that stage and I left of... school that's uh, really before you know before 16 I just wasn't going I just disengaged from it altogether and was was uh, learning the guitar as much as I could and really had my sights set on peeling away from my hometown and going to join a band and all that and that was the only thing in my mind yes yeah. so what was your first gig you went to and the first album you bought at this stage uh well i i i, I remember buying the who sellout that was a great the, the one with the uh the ads on the cover with roger daltrey sitting in a big bath of beans and all that and uh and pete townsend with a giant deodorant odorono sticking it under his armpit and uh, so that was the one with i can see for miles on it and uh, so that was the first kind of rock album i bought really and uh, i thought that was great and a friend an older friend introduced me to some Jimi hendrix and things as well so which i you know that was so space age for me i couldn't understand it at the time even no uh, but, I, but i loved it um i was interested in it you know 
And then as you know, we got to that point, there was punk, which obviously you sort of don't quite fit in. And I actually I sort of did an interview with Richard Strange a few years ago, bizarrely when he was I know Richard well, he's a lovely man, yeah. He is a fantastic guy. And he was saying with the the Doctors of Madness, he was a bit too he was like two, three years too too early for punk, but everybody in the audience watching him form punk bands. So, you know, there was those kind of moments that a few musicians have often talked about. His timing is everything, isn't it? And and some and some acts that came before managed to adjust. I think I mentioned in the book, I, you know, I saw the Stranglers way before punk and they were exactly the same, really. Or they just developed a slightly more aggressive edge and they fitted right in. And other bands just missed the boat, didn't they? You know, they were just a little bit too uh, classic rock still and they didn't they didn't fit in. So they faded away. And, uh, you know, even bands like The Who, I mentioned, they I, I think they they tried to make a sort of punk single after punk and it was kind of embarrassing. <laughs> yes. And I think, yes. Yeah, and the so, and the, and the stars all have to align, don't you, for you for you to make a success of something? Yes, absolutely. Right. And a lot of yeah. a lot of um, people, artists, musicians, bands have kind of often sort of managed to get themselves signed to a record label eventually, and the person who signed them sort of leaves about two two weeks later to because they you know get a better offer, and then everyone wonders who this band is, and no one wants anything to do with them. So there's there's a huge amount that has to, there's some there's a lot of planets that have to sign, line up for a band to um, progress to that next stage, really, isn't there? Well, that's the thing. Only only one thing has to fail, and the whole thing falls down. Really, uh, that that's that's often the case. There's often been some just brilliant careers that should have happened and just don't because for one reason or another. Yes, uh, there's a lot of luck involved, isn't there? There is so much luck. Mm. So when so with the book that's that's just come out, which was a huge amount to digest, because because you sort of fit in such a sort of interesting way. Because as I mentioned, you know, indie pop and John Peel was sort of my thing. With all his everything that John Peel played from Public Enemy to the Bundu Boys to Napalm Death, I was just really wanting to immerse myself in it. Even though, to be honest, though, you know, like I mentioned, David Bowie, I had a brother who was seven years older than me, and I would sneak into his room to play all his prog records at quite a young age, like Yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, the solo work of Rick Wakeman. I just find them all fascinating. And then I got to an age where I just got a bit bored and wanted a three-minute pop song. And there was there was John Peel with all this kind of interest and stuff. And that was when I was going to gigs. And you kind of have that kind of strange kind of period where you're sort of you're doing the the kind of um squats and and sort of forming bands, but don't sort of quite fit into any punk, post-punk or indie scene, do you? I don't know. It, yeah, I suppose it was the the, the moment I was born. The moment I was born, it was a it was a particular time. So I so John Peel himself, I think, is an exa- example of this. Someone who sort of championed progressive rock and um, hippies and fairies and dragons and dungeons for one minute, and then punk happened, and he kind of he he straddled that whole world straight away, didn't he? He got it straight away, and uh, and so his show was real a real education, wasn't it? Because it was very open minded. He used to play anything anybody else wouldn't just to give it a chance and that that brought him into contact with lots of new ideas and lots of new people and he was very he was open-minded enough to to overthrow everything for you know so that so you could hear everything you know and after a while I suppose he dropped the um the old brigade didn't he uh the genesis and yes and all that and he sort of dropped that for the for the undertones and the ramones and well I think I think John Waters his producer sort of mentioned that he said that um, well, there was two things. He said if John Peel ever reached puberty, we were in trouble. Which was I could understand <laughs> what he meant because that kind of he still had that excitement of a sixteen-year-old. And John Waters said that he liked the idea of John Waters. This is like the idea of a lot of bands, but wouldn't listen to them at home. Whereas John Peel 
actually would listen to them at home. And I understand both of those points of view. You think, actually, this is interesting. I don't quite get it, but I think it's good. Whereas the solo work of John Anderson, when he was, you know, sort of still in Yes, in that pompous way, was never going to be that exciting, was it? And I think that's where those kind of DJs sometimes can, yeah, sometimes look like they're it's abandoned. Just, it's just the vagaries of human taste, aren't there? Is that There's an awful lot to it, you know. Some people really... I mean, I, I got to know Henry Rollins a, a bit in the recent years and he likes some of the most extreme punk and he really likes it, you know. And he'll also, he, he also appreciates some old prog rock and things like that. It's just a matter of taste, isn't it? And sometimes people's taste gets influenced by what's cool and they don't want to be uncool, so they don't want to admit to liking certain things. But it works on a very visceral level for me. I mean, you know, I mentioned in the book, listening to Close to the Edge by Yes over a massive PA system in a field in South London at a fe all day festival, you know, for the first time at age 14 is a life changing experience to hear a piece of work like that. You just think, wow, you know, and, and, and however much the world tries to dissuade you that that's uncool or whatever, the, the, the emotional impact of it remains <laughs> with you your whole life. And if I listen to that record now, I'm still back in that field at the Oval in Kenya. Kennington in 1972 or whatever it was listening to it going having my mind blown you know yes absolutely no and um I still I can still recite some of those lyrics from those kind of very obscure albums and um I still enjoy it I sometimes find they do go on a little bit too long you know every song's about five and a half minutes if you're lucky it's all very pretentious yeah but it's sort of it hits you on an emotional level doesn't it I mean for instance you know I I, I ended up getting to really like punk you know like the Ramones or Iggy Pop or whatever, absolutely. That's that's definitely part of my my canon too. There's the very simple idea of that in that great big stylish way that those those people have a very simple idea and they just do it with such excellence. You just think, oh, you you can't argue with that. But it's also you know the other the other end of the spectrum. You've got this highly technical baroque kind of thing, which I also like. <laughs> yes, well, absolutely. And I still, if I've got to spare twelve minutes, love into the heart of the sunrise, which is still <laughs> an epic song. But you have to you have to put some serious time to one side and immerse sure. yourself. So sure. that's all good. So your first band, Bush Telegraph, was this the the first kind of moment where you thought, right, that's it. I'm going to be, I'm going to make this my career. Well, I think before that, it was it was the band I had with the, that I signed to Charlie Gillett's album label, a band called Local Heroes, and that was a real post punk indie band. Uh, it really was. It was like a sort of the sound was somewhere between you know what what later became maybe U2 and Public Image, and it was a sort of trio with a particular kind of reaching for a certain sound. And uh, that's when I thought I was going to make it, when when Charlie signed me and, and I, I made a couple of albums with him. Um, Bush Telegraph was a later thing. It was, it was post my work with Thomas Dolby. So that gave me a taste of like what it was like to be around a, a musician who was going places. Right, and, there you uh, go. Yeah, and then you know, then I got this deal with EMI, Bush Telegraph. So that was my idea of like, oh well, this we're going to be a mainstream success now. And it was a bit of a stab at that, but it was a hopeless stab because I wasn't really that, and that wasn't really going to be me. You know? No, this was true. And as the eighties trucked on, obviously there was seventy nine. Thatcher gets in this massive decade of Thatcherism. Then we had the the Falkland War, the miners' crisis, the we yeah. you know Green and Common. It was all going to get nuked. So during that period, how were you sort of dealing with sort of life and the and the struggles of sort of existence? Because well, I was you an mentioned... indie guy. I was a squatter, and I I actually had a girlfriend. I went. I spent a day at Greenham Common, <laughs> and I used to go on the Rock Against Racism things and all that. So I was a real lefty firebrand 
rebel, you know, in those days and, um, uh, you know, squatting and living on a shoestring. And it was, uh, you know, let's take the system down, man. That was me. Yes, absolutely. I love that that kind of because then obviously as as because you're it's interesting how you in the book to talk a lot about your I suppose kind of insecurities and the disappointments that keep coming and the and the sort of self-doubt, which is quite interesting because you you take some massive kind of hits, don't you, as a sort of fragile musician smoking lots of drugs. Yeah, well I think I think any any worthwhile endeavor has its moments of failure and humiliation and those and those are what define your journey in a way aren't they what, how you deal with those some for some people it stops stops them in their tracks and they fall over a hurdle and other people just get bounced off in another direction or get up and try again and i was one of those i was wasn't going to be defeat deterred by stuff happening to me uh, that was going to prevent me just being a musician somehow. That was my that was my thing. I wasn't. They didn't have anything else to do. I was going to do that one way or another. Yes, because because most people that I've interviewed, they have that five year narrative. They get together, yeah. twelve month honeymoon. They get a yeah. single. John Peel plays at John Peel session. That first album, tour bus around the UK, all the little indie circuit, punk circuit, all those and things. Most on a Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday nights, and then that tricky second album. And by the third album, everyone sort of hates each other and they've got no money. So that's when it kind of collapses. <laughs> and then they just think, I can't do that again. But you you sort of keep bouncing from one situation to another, going from Thomas Dobby. And, and I'm still doing it. And I think that's that's been my blessing in a way. Uh, you know, it, it's a, it, you know, one can say, I've, I've been asked this before, you know, you disappointed you weren't a successful artist. And, you know, because I'm a songwriter too. And in one way, yes, but another way, definitely not, because I've been allowed to bounce from you know bounce over the pond for decades and decades without ever having to to think that my career is over or I'm going to stop or anything at any point yes um, because I because I, I've never been that you know attached to one particular thing that has has a limited success and then a and then a, a an inevitable downfall I've always managed to hop hop on somebody's bandwagon. <laughs> yes, and then obviously the eighties is quite a tricky one. And one thing I've noticed: somebody, an artist that can be can have it in one period, can struggle in another. And one of those I would say would be, you know, Mr. Bowie, who was amazing. His work in the seventies, you know, every every year he well, did an was, album. Yeah. And then in the eighties, there was this kind of like a bit of a confused sort of where to go and what direction to go. And that's where he sort of you your paths cross at this point. So how did that meeting happen? Uh, it happened through through uh, the good offices of an A&R man at EMI who felt sorry for me being dropped by EMI and just um, sent me along to Abbey Road for a session with a Mr X. And that's what that's and that was him. Yes. And then I just happened to equip myself on the day um, well enough for him to want to continue a relationship of some, some, some sort. So I then got uh, dragooned in to do live aid and an absolute beginners and and uh, then then tin machine and, and an iggy pop album as well yes but it was i mean i can see how died in the wool bowie fans see that as his weakest period in a way in the 80s and I, I i get that i think he was trying to rediscover himself i mean tin machine's a perfect example of somebody casting around for a, a way to throw all the chips in the air and see where yes. they might land well, it's but interesting because I, it... I was going to say because you mentioned is it Clive Langer and Alan no, Winston, and but I did a, a few years ago. I did an interview with a, a young producer who was just kind of getting his foot literally in the door. A Mark, is it a Mark Saunders who talks about recording the Dancing in the Street session with, yes, with Mark Bowie? Saunders. And... Mm, that rings a bell. Yes, 
Mark Saunders, <laughs> yes. I think he's I actually put up something on the internet a while ago about my meeting with Bowie and Jagger before that session, where I had a little meeting with them in Soho to routine dancing in the street, which is a surprise. And I think I, I think Mark Saunders chipped in and 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 with some terrible comment about he disbelieved my entire account of that. Uh, not like he'd know, but he's the engineer, I think. He was the tape op or engineer on the session for Absolute Beginners on the day. And he would be the person who leaked the cassettes, I think, of the uh, of the demos and of Bowie doing impersonations and things. So I don't know whether I don't know whether I'm quite uh, enamored of Mr. Saunders and his opinions, but because uh, he seemed he seemed to doubt my account of meeting with up with Bowie and Jagger. But I assure you it happened. Well, yes, absolutely. I think one thing that I can remember, this was a few years ago, he did sort of describe how different the two artists were, yes, you know, were. Um, Jagger sort of dancing off and wondering where he'd gone. Then he'd come back to the mic and Bowie, what he, I, from memory, what he wanted was he'd sing each kind of bit and then you'd have to do it again. And I'm not sure if that was true or not, but he's... It, it was definitely definitely true that Jagger was a one one take guy he just came in did this take and said that's enough let's have a beer and Bowie was more meticulous and a little bit more anxious about his performance and a little bit he wasn't always like that but I think on that day he was he was uh he did yeah he took took a few takes and and took a bit more care over it and you know yeah for sure yes because I'd seen Bowie on his serious moonlight tour and and somehow I was I was a bit disappointed, to be honest. It was a massive, you know, Milton Keynes gig and the sound. But the band that he constructed for Live Aid, I really loved the sound. It seemed a lot more light and less heavy on the guitar and somehow less pompous. Did you, looking back, did you feel that the the kind of lineup that he got for that particular, yeah? Well, that was partly my fault because uh, he asked me to put the band together. So it was my, you know, it was my friends and, and uh, neighbours in the band. <laughs> Um, and and as, as far as it being guitar light, I look back on it and think, oh, doesn't my guitar sound weak and terrible? And that's my my own take on that. But uh, but I what I like about it is the um, the energy we brought to it because we were all so young and excited, and we were all Bowie fans, and we all realised what a big moment this could be for all of us, and how it was fun to contribute to that feeling of live aid and what it meant yes that that, that 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 really positive energy we had was was great even if we technically it was you know he'd, he's had he's had better bands but it, it it just had it did have a real energy to it and people loved it for that i think i thought so and i really loved i mean claire who you mentioned in the band yeah. you know yeah. she had a great sound the two backing singers also were amazing yeah. I thought Thomas Dolby obviously was good. It just seemed yeah. to be a band that you thought, oh, that would be brilliant for him to do something else with rather than just, well, that was my one project. And Yeah, that would have been lovely, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, especially me, me, Tom and Matthew had been in a, in a, in a band together. I mean, we were Thomas Dolby's band, me, Tom and Matthew Seligman, and to be up there. And then Neil Conti also, I've done lots of work with him since he's a great drummer. And, uh, and of course, Claire was my girlfriend at one point. So it was a very nice, it was a very nice thing. And we, yeah, we should, we could have done more. I don't know what he did straight after that. What did he do straight after that? He probably went in. Was it um, he done tonight? And then was it Never Let Me Down? Was, was it? Yeah, after Live Aid, wasn't it? Was Let's Dance a little bit after that? Or was, no, Let's Dance was eighty two. Yeah, so yeah. there was Live Aid. There was Tonight with Blue Jean, and then there was that. Is right. it never let me down with oh Pete Frampton came back in. And, and... <laughs> That's right. So he did. In fact, I saw the Glass Spider in. Uh, uh, 
Gothenburg, in Rotterdam, I think, in Rotterdam or Gothenburg. No, it was, oh no, in Rotterdam I saw a gig, we were out there with Thomas Dolby and I saw him do a gig there. But the Glass Spider we actually supported with Iggy Pop in Gothenburg. Yeah, we, I remember that was the Peter Frampton thing. Yes. Came up on a pyramid or something. It was um it was it was a bit spinal tap. But um it was it was kind of I saw it in Berlin and they had new model army support and it was all very, you know, no one had really bought the album because we all thought the cover was terrible and then it was just like it just didn't happen. And but in it was a so... career like Bowie's, you can afford some off days, can't you? Uh, because he, he he ended so strongly his his whole life. Is that the stuff he was doing right at the end of his life was so great. Amazing. It was stunning. But oh god, absolutely. I mean, you know, the yeah, it was it was amazing and yeah, just sad at the same time. But with your, which was going back to your squat period and and this other musicals, because it's great that you you meet people like um, Adele Adele Berté, who I interviewed a few years ago with her book coming out, and then oh, yeah. obviously Alien Sex Fiend was in there. You had Transvision Fan, so you were sort of hanging out with this kind of whole eighties kind of gang, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, after playing something like Live Aid, you get it opens doors. People people notice, and they want to they want to do something with you. Plus, I had a studio for late for eleven years in Portobello Road, so that brought me in contact with all the West London was packed full of pop stars and musicians, and in, the, in all the cafes and studios in the area. So I just got to meet loads of people through that, and I've always been in that in that you know bouncing around in that world doing as a session guitarist as well i was dragooned in to do various things and uh so i just got to meet a lot of people and worked on a lot of diverse music i think that's another thing that i've really enjoyed is to to work with just not never really say no um unless i really had a strong reason to i've always pitched myself into situations that are unfamiliar and just think oh yeah i'll, I'll have a go at that and <laughs> learn something on the way yes well the 80s you went from your band, you know, people working with people like the Passions, who did the that yeah. great single, didn't you? Yeah. As well as Thomas Dolby, then you did Live Aid, a bit of Bowie, then the Iggy Pop period as well. Because by then, Iggy Pop's solo work was pretty forgettable, wasn't it? His early eighties work, you know, wasn't. Well, again, really Iggy's had a he's, he's had a patchy career. You know, uh, something's great, something's not so great, and um, uh, even after that, there were there were you know up, there were ups and downs in it. But I think the 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 moment I uh, Bowie again was the 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 link there he he called me and asked me to play on uh, the blah 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 record which was really a david bowie and iggy record it was like they collaborated on the songwriting and and it was like a some of it sounds like a lost bowie album in a way to me yes and, i mean it was quite clear i mean the production work is quite interesting it's it's very it's dated 80s. now it's dated now because it's well partly because it's drum machines and it's not a band record it's a band that was put together as a kit of parts really um so it was not a, there was not a band in a room playing songs it was a you know drum programming and uh you know that sort of thing so the approach was all piecemeal yes because his previous album i think he had a guitarist because it rob dupre which who pray yeah and then and i think i saw iggy sort of on the tour during the 80s and i'm i'm sure steve jones from the sex pistols was on that particular well i, I shared a stage with steve and iggy in in la on the blah 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 tour steve came and guested i think he was due to be the guitarist at that point instead of me um but he again had visa problems or something like that so he had to stay in the states so that's why I think he couldn't come to Switzerland and record blah, blah, blah. And I, I think that's the reason I got the call, because Steve couldn't do it. Um, uh, but but we got together in, when we were in, in the States. He came and, and played with Iggy. 
Yes. And what was your experience of Switzerland like at that stage? Did you meet well, any eccentric yeah. people? Like, do you ever meet a guy called Prince Stash by any chance? Who's this? That sounds familiar. Aristocratic <laughs> chap who suddenly Prince appeared on Stash. TikTok and and uh, has the, he lives in a castle. He's obviously inherited a lot of money and has a lot of amusing stories, including some with David Bowie as well. Because yeah, I think okay. Prince Taylor lived in Switzerland as well and was buried there. So um, okay. So no, they... I didn't meet any any locals like that really. Uh, but being with Bowie, you know, uh, there because I did the blah 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 record and the Tin Machine record there at Montreux, and uh, and it was an interesting time. I mean, uh, the, obviously Queen were hanging out sometimes, and we went to Roger Taylor's birthday party on a boat and all that. And uh, uh, Julian Temple used to come and hang out, and Julian Lennon also not the junior julian sorry sean lennon used to come for his summer holidays and bowie used to look after him sometimes yes so at that stage had you got the call from dear old stephen morrissey to say look the band we're minus johnny marr at this stage and do yeah. you want to do you want to see if you could just kind of slip into this quite out complex the, jigsaw out of the blue afterwards that was and i again it was i think it was probably because i'd worked with bowie and iggy i'd got noticed by him some somewhere along the line and uh just got a call saying do you want to come and meet morrissey to be you know he wants to chat with you and i turned up and he asked me to join the smiths and i just refused um i refused out of uh, the idea that I didn't think the Smiths was a goer after without Johnny, right? <laughs> I just didn't. And then I did uh, subsequently get to work with Morrissey a year later and wrote some songs with him. And yes, um, which was and, a, you, and you talk quite fondly of Morrissey and his kind of yeah, and the fact that he helped your creative kind of direction as well or development. Well, it was it was again it was a sort of thing where um, Bowie and Iggy. It wasn't really a stretch for me as a guitar player. Um, in some ways, it was like it's quite familiar territory musically, and they weren't very they weren't very sort of uh, demanding. They just let me do what I normally did, kind of thing. And in my, I was in my comfort zone. But with Morrissey, I I kind of wanted because I was a big Johnny Marr fan, a big Smiths fan. I sort of wanted to be special. If I was going to play guitar for Morrissey, I wanted it to be something that that I could really bring something original and new. So I did really push myself to 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 do things I hadn't done before with Morrissey. And that's yes. why I'm, I'm fond of that music that I made with him, because it's, you know, I was definitely pushing the boat out and moving forward as a musician, for sure. It was definitely a kind of a classic period of his kind of solo work, up to the Mick Ronson, your Arsenal album, which, again, is a good little piece of work. But um, with I think Alan White is then sort of the person who takes over and... Um, well, he got he got a band together after that, didn't he, with Bosbora and all that, and they've been very loyal, good band for him ever since. I think. Yes, uh, his um, his rockabilly his rockabilly, rockabilly phase, guys. wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, which was which was quite good. You well, know. I got the trapdoor after after um, the the Bona Drag album. I just, I got the trapdoor out off Morrissey, you know, uh, uh, and I don't know why it wasn't. Uh, we didn't get on or anything. It just uh, I don't know. It just uh, but I I I. I'd uh, been useful to him for that period, and that was that. But uh, yes, I, I haven't I read like, his. I like the work. Yes, did you ever read his book? By the way, yes, just... I did read his book, and I thought the first half of it was excellent. 
Really excellent. I thought it was really good up until he gets to the Smith's court case, and then he, gets, <laughs> he gets a bit sort of a monomaniac in the book after that. I think about that and about how dreadful they all are and everything. But I, I like the his obviously he can write, and uh, the first part of the book I thought was really good. Uh, there's a really interesting little codicil to that is that nobody really comes out very well from that book that he met. There's always some scathing criticism, and so Mark Nevin called me. Um, and Mark Nevin from Fairground Attraction. And he, yes. he worked with Morrissey in a very similar way to me, written a few songs, produced some things. And, and um, Mark phoned me up a couple of weeks after Morrissey's book came out and said, uh, oh, Kev, have you read Morrissey's book? I said, yeah. He said, thank fuck we're not in it. <laughs> because I think, you know, everybody who was mentioned in it came out, came off badly. Yes. Well, it, it was just, a, you know, I would only read it in small sections, but it did make me laugh on yeah. so many levels because it was just everything. He was just, oh, woe betide me. You know, it's like the Sandy Shaw story was like, oh, my, she sort of also, everyone he meets, he is like, oh, I'm just so wonderful. And they kill me. And then I have to get up and do it. And they kill me. Well, and it's this just is like, it. This is Morrissey, isn't it? It's always been like that. I mean, he's, he, you know, that, that sort of, uh, you know, um, you know the character in all the Smith songs. Really, that's him. It's just an extension of him. I know Sandy very well, so Sandy can be a difficult person, that's for sure. She's a st- really strong personality, and I can imagine how Morrissey could get uh, folded by Sandy a little bit. Yes, this is this is true. I did meet. I did an interview last week with the guy who you do mention, Slaughter and the Dogs, in the book. Um, is it yeah. Rossi? And he yeah. he sort of mentions that Morrissey was the, one of the a very early in his very early days auditioned as the sort of lead singer, but he sort of was there with a you know his coat on and a hood over his head, and he just got a mumbled lyrics, and they thought, God, I'm not <laughs> sure he's never going to be a front man, is he? This man. So that's right. But you know, but he is a charismatic and great figure, and and in some ways. And the, the music is so interesting and so good. And so, you know, lots of it's so good. Yes, this is true. But then as we were trucking up to the the late 80s, there was obviously a change. There was Ecstasy came along. Then there was the grunge scene with yeah. Seattle. And then, you know, Tin Machine appears, which I have to say, after the, the two previous Bowie albums, is, I thought was a real relief. <laughs> I well, I, again, it's a very divisive, isn't it, uh, to Bowie fans? But I, I do think it's weathered quite quite well even if you didn't like it first time round. if you look if you go back and listen to it now it actually sounds quite quite good i think yes and this amazing band i mean just yeah. tony tony and hunt are just uh, that, was, that was great yeah playing with them i mean because i got drafted in i don't know whether you know I, I mean i was a sort of fifth member of tin machine i got drafted in they'd already started the record so it was a good, already a good way along and they realized they they needed another guitar player to add another guitar and um, so I was just drafted in. I did the first album and tour with them, and it was really interesting. It was really, it was great, actually. Very yes. Enjoyable. Did you find? I mean, in the book, you do allude to it. This strange experience of having to somehow be a bit of a ghost within this kind of band that are very much this four piece, but really there's there's a fifth member, but no one ever talks about them. Uh, it wasn't quite like that. I mean, it was quite. I was part of the gang, really, when we were all together. I was definitely involved in all the socials and all the, you know, and uh, and the banter that went on and all the rest of it. And I still count them as as friends today. So I still, uh, I'm still in touch with Tony and Reeves a little bit, and um, not Hunt so much because he's a kind of bit of a recluse these days. But uh, uh, but I'm, st- you know, I, yeah, I, I, I didn't uh, expect to be the fifth member I, when I came in I thought oh, maybe I'll be part of this band but then it was clear that I wasn't going to be and it was just I was going to be a sort of guest member but it, it didn't didn't really bother me that much I just 
just thought, well, this is a great opportunity, another great opportunity for, to work with Bowie, isn't it? Yes, well, absolutely. And, you know, I personally think it's great. The film that was made last year, serious, um, was it Moon Aid Daydream? It sort of finishes. Yeah. Did you like that film? I'm not sure. I... I got very immersed in it and I went with yeah. it. And then I listened to a podcast with the director who explained a bit more about it. And I then went back and, and got the DVD and watched it. And I thought, oh, yes, I kind of understand. He he takes it up to that chapter where, you know, it's almost like David's kind of DB, as El Slick calls him, um, is kind of it, it lost and then he finds, you know, love. And then that's kind of where the story ends. And um yeah. yeah, I thought it was a little bit over earnest in a way, but I mean, if it's Brett Morgan's vision rather than David Bowie's. Vision. Yes, and it's definitely, it's definitely, you know, I think if you look at it like that and just an experience to have a couple of hours with David, it's yeah. quite, quite amazing. So yeah. I, I enjoyed it. I mean, it was kind of a relief not hearing the usual talking heads, I suppose, the same yes, people yes. that we've kind of heard. But on saying that, you know, it's always nice. Just going back slightly to dear old Morrissey, obviously massive, but Mary Margaret O'Hara, another character that I just thought her album Miss America was incredible. Right, right. I thought, this is going to be brilliant. I'm banking on this one. And then she disappears. She disappeared. Again, she's a very, fra I think, so, you know, psychologically, emotionally, just a very a very uh, fragile kind of person, I think, a very anxious kind of nervous person. That was my impression of her having met her for just for a few days. Yes. Uh, but that that is truly a, a lightning striking album. But sometimes you get these records, don't you? They just they just appear out of nowhere and someone makes a brilliant record and then it just never happens again. <laughs> yes. Well, normally something happens and you think, hmm, and yeah. then they disappear and they think well that's it i'm going to back to the arizona deserts and Lawrence, he was be... a huge fan of that record he he, he introduced me to it and, and uh yeah it's in my collection still play it it's great yes absolutely there's a lovely there's a lovely kind of that i don't know if you remember those country and western country i don't know cowboy films where the the music had that kind of i don't know how you to describe it is it um who did most of those brilliant soundtracks to the magnificent not the magnificent seven one of those ones with clint eastwood and there's there's that kind of musical motif going on with a few of her tracks like that yeah i yeah you mean like aaron copeland or someone like that or make that kind of uh, western expansive big sky kind of yes movie. yes and slide guitar is part of that and and yes yeah yeah i see that yeah for it's, sure. it's quite good. But then in the book, you describe your experiences with Paul McCartney, which sound incredibly horrendous. And then years later, kind of ends in, in even more kind of horrendousness. Really, yeah, it was it? just a missed opportunity. Somehow we didn't click and somehow it was a bit weird altogether. A bit of a weird, surreal experience. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I have a tinge of regret about that because I, sh I, I wish I'd succeeded there a little bit more because I'm a huge fan of his work. And uh, but it just didn't it just wasn't to be. Uh, so I did a few weeks of work on a, an album called Flowers in the Dirt. I have actually ended up being on some of the released material from those sessions years later because they did a reissue of that album with a few of the development versions of the tracks that I played on. Right. On some of them and credited. So that was nice to end up just with a credit on the record. But it it didn't it just didn't work out for me. Uh, it's a it's a pity. <laughs> yes, well it is. And it was kind of from the book. You you mentioned that you didn't know what you'd done, but it was possibly mentioning the Ruttles at this point. It was point. mentioning the Ruttles. That's what Elvis Costello told me that I'd mentioned the Ruttles and it had gone down like a cup of cold sick with the with the with the boss. And um, uh, I, you know, I, again, it was 
just probably naivety on my part. I should have maybe thought, maybe don't mention that. I don't know what he feels about it. Because George Harrison was involved in the Ruttles and had financed it, I think, I thought it was all all cool with the Beatles kind of thing, but it obviously wasn't. <laughs> I like the fact that there's a, there's a new Ruttles uh, record called Cow and Hen that's come out in the last few weeks, which is yes. obviously the on the Now and Then Beatles revival record so when you met paul then years decades later and have that kind of unfortunate moment i mean that's that's quite an extraordinary when you were when you were recounting that and writing it did that did you have to go and have a strong coffee and well no we just laugh about my missus and i laugh about it really you know um but it was all it was just slightly awkward at the time it was just sort of weird because i'd become friends with brian eno and i was a member of his little choir that used to meet in west london and then and then all sorts of famous people would turn up and hang out at that and mccartney was there one week and he sort of either didn't or pretended to or just didn't remember me <laughs> he shook he shook my hand and said oh who are you kind of thing or you know happy birthday it was my birthday and uh you know, and I said, "Yeah, we worked together." And he just sort of slightly blanked me, and and it was just weird. And I again, it was I, I just get that weird. Some people you just get a thing or a vibe off them, and they don't you don't know why. They just don't they don't seem to be open or honest with you. And I think he's what that I have that effect on him, or he does on me. I don't know why. It is interesting because I mm. I remember sort of quite a few journalists, including one called Chris Roberts, who has written quite a few books. He was you know on the melody making i think he's been in he formed a band himself but he said meeting david bowie was quite extraordinary because he would come in as if he was an old friend he would remember everything about you as if somebody had sort of said right the last time you met you know he's got these children they go to this school his yeah. wife's called this and he would go in is that you know how's the wife how's the children how's the new school yeah. he would know all that stuff and he said look Chris, you know, I've got, I'll be making this, you know, recorded, you know, can I play it for you? And he'd be going, my God, David Bowie's asked me to play some demo. You know, well, and it was like, it, on a personal level, Bowie was like that, extremely charming and empathetic and 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 humorous and relaxing. And, and you know, although energy around him crackled, you know, like electricity, um, he was on a personal level, always extremely, you know, clubbable and nice and funny and relaxed. Yes, unlike fun. Paul, which was quite the <laughs> But there was an amazing, oh yes, that was an amazing story you had where you were asked to score some, you know, Coke for David and then you went, yeah. oh, where shall I get it? Amazingly, it comes via Angie, who <laughs> he'd obviously hadn't seen and were having a very tricky relationship with. I mean, that's that's boggling. That's but The first day I met him, it was about an hour after I'd first met him. <laughs> And so, there you go. So did yeah, you know Angie at all or did you I just... I didn't know Angie. I just, you know, I, I happened to call someone who I thought could help with the with the request. And uh, and he scored it off Angie Bowie just completely coincidentally. Uh, that's what he told me. And then, and you know, so it was like a, a mind-boggling coincidence that could happen. <laughs> wow. I mean, that is, that is quite... And so for you, I mean, how are you dealing? Because you obviously, you know, there was the 70s, there's that 80s period where it's just very full-on. How are you then coping through the 90s kind of creatively and emotionally? Well, that was, my, that, was, that was my studio period, really. So I built a, a studio and I had a career as a producer and I was in Portobello Road in the basement of you know of a shop in my newly kitted out studio and basically i was had my head down as a studio producer and session guitarist for that that period 
and that's what happened to me and then and then i kind of got um uh got into the world more of t- tv and film music and started to, to do that produced a few up and coming artists and 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 got into that and it wasn't until i my family relocated here to the south coast in east sussex and suddenly i got asked to tour again and um, first of all with Keziah jones and then you know there was there was Sinead o'connor and then and then uh, and then back with iggy and suddenly you know it was like an echo of what i'd been through in the 80s i thought it was all gone and over and i uh, didn't reckon with the fact that the major source of income and ac- economic activity in rock and roll is live gigs again yes there you and, go uh, because because records nobody makes money out of records anymore and so people with a skill set like mine and a history it just became in demand again so now i find myself out on the road again uh which has been great it's been particularly the period with iggy 2014 to 19 was a really a fantastic uh, opportunity to 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 go round again with him. Yes, with the studio is that the Barney Platts Mills? Was that well, that's, did... that was in Barney's basement? That's where I had the had that studio. Yeah, me and a guy called Rod Beale, who was an engineer from Real World with Peter Gabriel and stuff. And uh, we we pulled resources and we produced a couple of albums together. Him as an engineer, me as the producer, and we pulled resources and and bought this you know amazing amount of gear and just kitted out this fantastic little basement studio and ran it for 11 years in Portobello Road until such time as everybody could make records on their laptop at home. Yes. Uh, and then the idea of having a, a studio at all became something where unless you can afford to have it at home and not have to pay the rent on it, it didn't make sense. So that that's when it became a home studio and that's it's followed me here even though I have an outbuilding in the garden where I still work but I don't have to run it as a commercial studio anymore so I'm happy to do pick and choose my work in there and then be a live musician again yes it's amazing how many interviews I do with people who've got shacks in the Arizona desert just around the Joshua tree and they sort <laughs> of show me their place they go oh, yeah this is where I've recorded those oh albums. you know Alan Johannes I th- I'm not sure. Alan Johannes is from Rancho de Luna, which is in um, five, uh, 29 Palms in, in, in Joshua Tree. It's part of the it's part of the satellite of people that round Queens of the Stone Age, really. And oh, yeah. I've done. I've been there because that's where the old Graham Parsons passed away, wasn't it? On one of those bits. Yeah. Did you go there? Yes. So, yeah, I went there too. We we did a pilgrimage. We did a Grand Parsons pilgrimage on an Iggy Iggy jaunt once. <laughs> yeah, and there was there, and there was another. There's a woman who was in the Concrete Blondes. She's got a place near the Joshua Tree. And last night I did an interview with a guy called Alan Durwood, who's been in. He oh he started Generation X for two albums, and then thought Billy Idol too much rock and roll, too much wanting to be more of a star and rock and roll than being a musician. So he then had a knife, just you know making music for because he wanted to make music rather than to be a rock star where well i think that's my thing as well really i didn't didn't really care for the stardom aspect of it even though i would have liked to have been a successful artist at one point it you know seeing up close as i have how what it takes to be a rock star and that that kind of life it's not really an enviable life in lots of ways of course there's the adulation and the money and all the rest of it but there's also the the idea you can't you can't go and buy a shirt without causing a riot you know or that sort of thing and i don't envy that at all yes and and obviously you then work with Sinead o'connor which sounds another quite difficult period of of sort of 
um, yes, a dynamic, which is quite tricky, isn't it? And that must, because um, your book is full of, I mean, for anybody in a band or starting a band, it's it's quite, um, at times, quite horrific, isn't it? What you portray, not portray, but your experiences of what you have to I don't know whether go I go as so far as horrific, but there are ups and downs to a life in music as a sideman and a session guy. And, the, you know, uh, the, the, there, there are a lot of ups and downs. And I, I, Sandy Shaw said to me once, you, in order to have a long career in this business, you have to learn what humiliation feels like. And I never really understood that except that I did you know, because it happened uh, uh, several times and and uh, you know there are failures and there are there's a high there's a there's lots of disappointments along the way but I can't say overall that I haven't had the most amazing opportunities and, and career to work with some of the people I've worked with it's just such a broad a broad spectrum and not I couldn't really have had a more interesting list if I'd have planned it and I didn't plan any of it no, this is true. But then you have those kind of great stories. There's the road manager, isn't there? Was it Paul Dim- Dimpsey, who was one of these yeah, characters? I won't give you his real name. That's that's I've spared I've spared his real name. Oh, but, really? Uh, yeah. And there was I wrote a lot more about that as well because it was in the recent past and it was a tour. I just I, I was just uh, flabbergasted to meet somebody so quite so unpleasant and incompetent as as that. But uh, um, uh, but uh, the publisher said, do, do we really need to feature too much of this guy? And I said, no, you don't. You can chuck most of it out. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess that so was quite. It was basically to illustrate, by contrast, how amazing crew people are generally, tour managers, managers these days, and crew people. They're, they're just the salt of the earth. They're fantastic people. And I've always had a most uh, amazing time with the support people around rock and roll and, and who wouldn't. Who, who you know without whom bands wouldn't be able to find their way out of a paper bag no it would be the spinal tap backstage wouldn't it really <laughs> but um because that was yeah that was quite interesting because over the last couple of years there's i suppose there's those kind of musicians like you know richard strange and i came to the art center to see you performing the work of lou reed and there was oh did like, you come to one of those yeah i like yes. that game a lot and not, not enough people came to that i don't know why it just it sort of fell flat in terms of audience did you come to colchester just the norwich one i came to the, the art norwich center one. in norwich and yeah. that was you know that was good i mean richard was amazing there was terry edwards the, yeah. the most amazing band of all yeah and um, amazing songs. But again, because I think Richard had told me that, that, yeah, that was because of that particular tour that I did the interview. And um, it all sounded like it was going to be absolutely brilliant. And then suddenly the work of Lou Reed wasn't quite so popular in Norwich. <laughs> or anywhere for that matter. I don't know. I mean, it was one of Tom Wilcox's uh, little babies. And he, he's the guy who puts together these amazing, some of the amazing projects I've been in in the last few years. And he's part of the reason Tom is a kind of a shaker and mover in the music world. He had a, had a punk band called Maniac Squat, and he, he's a but he's become a patron of the arts because of his general um, you know success in other areas. It gives him the wherewithal to put together some of his fantasy musical projects. So that was one of them. Richard doing Lou Reed, and I thought it was a great uh, idea, and it was a great band. But he also he also started the Holy Holy Band with Tony Visconti and Woody Woodmansey. He put that yes. together and enabled the 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 genesis of that and this lust for life thing that i'll be i'll be doing again in march with um clem burke and glenn matlock and katie puckrick that's yes. another one of the projects and this one seems to have taken off it's been really well attended and re- really well received going back with tom because that was the first project he did 
Uh, was that the Earl Slick doing um, Station to Station? Was that his? Well, no, that was one, that was one of his with Earl Slick and Bernard, Bernard and uh, Stephen he, Norman, I think. So Mike Garson uh, and he put me together with Mike Garson for a thing in England, and that's how I met Mike. And uh, no, that wasn't by any means the first thing. My first encounter with him was a a sort of fest, a thing he did at the ICA in London um, to commemorate blah blah. Blah, and me and Erdl Kazilke, the, the original musicians on Blah Blah Blah, got together to do that, and that was when I met Tom first of all. Yes. So when you, you know, coming up almost to the current day or year, so there was Tony Sells doing, you know, Lust for Life, and then yeah. Tony doesn't make it. What Tony did... it was all built around him. His name was on the t-shirts and everything. <laughs> but uh, you know, we had a little pivotal moment uh, um, when we were in the planning where uh, it, it became clear that Tony would not have uh, documents to travel in time to make the gigs. And that through, through uh, you know, one fuck up or another, that didn't happen. But it, it, a couple of weeks before the gig, uh, we were just about to cancel the whole thing when Clem Burke and I decided to call Glenn Matlock and ask him to sit in as the only person who could have made that happen. And Glenn happily said yes. So it, that's that's how it was saved. Uh, yeah. I, I feel sorry for Tony because he did, you know, there was a lot of anticipation and we planned it for nearly a year, but he didn't manage to get his documents in order. So there you go. Yes. Was there a reason not to have Tony initially to have Tony and Hunt, or was Hunt just out of the? Well, equation? we tried to ask Hunt, but but Hunt doesn't. He, I, his health is a little bit dicky, and I don't know. And he doesn't seem to come out of Austin. He lives in Austin, and he doesn't seem to want to come out of his his house very much. Or out yes, of so I don't think Hunt would have been a, a match fit really. No, I did an interview with him a few years ago, and I must admit, he did look a bit of a shack. <laughs> I remember when I first met Hunt, he had a he was living in someone's garage in in West Hollywood, and he was sort of renting a, a, a garage in someone's house. But he had it, you know, so he was literally living on a sleeping bag on the floor of a garage. And he was renting, and he had a Corvette outside. <laughs> Because when he was seen outside the garage, he had to look like a cool rock star. So he had the Corvette, but he was sleeping on a on a mattress in a garage. <laughs> yes, this is true. So then, you know, with the book that's just come out, how, when did you decide this was it? Because you've caught a sort of a zeitgeist moment here. Because I love it, but everyone has been writing books. There's films. They have. Well, I, think lo- I mean, every, everyone seems to have written a book in lockdown. Um, but I started mine in 2016. After Bowie died, I decided to... I was back with Iggy, you know, in the middle of that. And then Bowie died. And I thought, well, it's time now to tell the story, tell, tell my story. So I just started writing it down. And then it, and then it coalesced into a book over a number of years. Um, so it, it's just a happy accident. It's come out now and done reasonably well among the myriad of books that have been written through through lockdown. But some rock biographies, you know, if I blow my own trumpet a bit, I think it's quite well written. And, I, and I, I'm quite proud of the way it seems to be a page turner. And I get a lot of feedback from people saying they really couldn't put it down and they enjoyed the way it zipped along. And I like that. And some rock books are not like that. They're a bit turgid. Even Elton John's, God bless him. I, I tried to read his autobiography and I just couldn't get through it because or Elvis Costello wrote that amazing um autobiography called Disappearing Ink and you know something unfaithful music or something but it's like 800 pages man <laughs> you don't need that. 
So it's yes. been, it, the book's been very well received, and I'm very grateful that it has. I, I didn't. It, it surprised me how how well it's going. Actually, I'm getting. I'm you know, it's nice. I'm, the feedback's nice from it. Well, there's the two publishers who I particularly look out for, and one is Jawbone, and the other one is Nine Eight Books, and they right. they they seem to have been picking up artists that their story possibly hasn't been told, but they've got this fantastic story, which you're kind of more curious. Because I I mean, I must admit, I've got the Elton one just in front of me. And I just thought I'd never want to read it. but Well, just try, but it's not very well written, actually. I mean, you know my favourite rock biography? It's a very slim volume. It's it's Mark E. Smith's Rebel. Have you read that? No. It's a hoot. You pick it up and read it. It's fantastic. And, you know, it's great, that book. And it's it's only a short book, but it's really funny. I did. Oh, was that the one where he mentions he's only got three chairs, one for him, his wife, and just one other guess. Otherwise, you might start a community if you have more. Something like that. He says some really funny things like, you know, it, my I, my old dad said to me, if you ever feel sexy, have a glass of water and run around in the garden, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's really great. Yes. And he slags off people like really roundly in there. And it's just great. It's just a funny, it's a really funny book. So I was worried about, I'm slightly worried about upsetting people in, in this book. And I've always been worried about that. I've sort of taken some things out and toned some things down and left some things in. But I'm overall, I'm very happy with it. And I must say Jawbone have been an incredible um, uh, support because uh, it was a suggestion of a friend of my wife's that I did not self-publish this book and I looked for a publisher. I didn't go through an agent or anything. I just emailed Jawbone, the manuscript, forgot all about it. And several months later, they came back just at the right moment and said, we like this and we want it. And they've been marvellous. Everything they've done to the book and every suggestion they've made, I've I've uh, been very happy with. So they've been great. Yeah. And I know that I think Paul Simpson from the Wild Swans is also out on Jawbone at the same yeah. time. And again, that, that's that been a really interesting read. And I did, again, he was really thinking, I've written it, I'm really enjoying it. But then that nervousness of it being published and going... Well, I mean, a book's going to be there forever, isn't it? After we're long gone, it'll still be there in someone's uh, on someone's bookcase. So you have to. Uh, it's a difficult thing to do because I don't know. Some people don't chime with the idea that you should talk about this stuff at all. They think it's uncool or whatever. But I, I, I think it. I think people like to know. And and I've got into the habit of doing a few launches and one man shows, and I sing and show some clips and talk and talk about the book and everything and i just know from the audience's reaction that people really like the stories they really like to hear what it's like to be on the other side of the curtain and looking out and and see what goes on behind the scenes and that and i i, I think it's it, it's nice from, from that point of view yes absolutely and did you also feel because obviously you've talked a little you know quite a lot in the book about your own sort of ups and downs and depression and drugs and stuff like that did it also feel like another kind of way of being able to let go or cleanse or process some of the things that have happened I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think that's not that's that's a good way of uh, of putting it, for sure. I mean, I don't. I I've never been an, thought of myself as as any of these situations being life threatening. You know, drug use and this sort of thing. It's always been for me a sort of um, diversion that hasn't threatened the core of my life in some way. Um, and I've been very lucky like like that. So other people. I mean, I watched Robbie Williams's documentary though, and it's amazing he's not dead really. And some and you know and and seeing Shane McGowan um you know what a lovely guy but but what what a what terrible physical situation he got into and everything with the with the drinking so i've never felt that but it but it's a nice way of, of dealing with it and talking about it openly uh, it is nice because some people hear what you've done and they think oh you just must be a, this 
extremely capable and focused person with this you know amazing you know ability all the time and it's not life's not like that sometimes you don't want to get out of bed in the morning and sometimes you hate yourself and sometimes you doubt everything you're doing and and that has to be talked about too because i think it's everybody's struggle in a certain way yes no god absolutely and and those stories of i suppose it's that story of you living in a squat and then going out and going on to <laughs> the stage at live aid it's it's like you kind of think, well, I can't imagine them living in a squat in those ways. But yeah, you know, and and when you're young, and most of those bands from the '80s, you know, there was unemployment, the you know, job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes. I think that's why there were so many bands in the '80s because there was so. Well, much it was like an apprenticeship in a way. You could, if you you know, if you knew how to work the system, you could live off your dole check and learn your craft. Is what you could do. So it was, it did did produce a whole generation of musicians, I think, which wouldn't have happened any other way. Yes. And have you found, I mean, especially with the, so much of the work you're doing now and you're, you're working with people like Terry Edwards and mm-hmm. and uh, Richard Strange, do you feel like there's a little bit of a support creative group of people who are just kind of keen to think, look, we survived so those, this long? Those of us who survived this long are much nicer to be around than it was when we were all younger and all having something all competitive and having something to prove and maybe dissing each other and the rest of it. And I think, so there was an element of, uh, you know, I think everybody, that's what's nice. I think even looking at the more famous people I've worked with, they weren't all nice people at the beginning of their lives and the beginning of their careers. They all had their edges and they all had to give up quite a lot of normalcy to, to do what they do. And all of us have done that. Uh, but but as if people survive and they get older, what's nice is they're now the sort of people who I can really respect for what they've done. And, and they really have something to teach everybody, I think. Um, you know, I love the fact that reprobates like Iggy Pop can go through everything he did and end up as a really erudite, wise, funny, nice man who, you know, you just look at them and say, yeah. <laughs> amazing yes that's a good life that's a good life you know to to, to beat to survive is a good life oh god absolutely so next year you've got your lust for life again why did you have go for katie by the way because i i love her that was tom's idea um tom wilcox's idea and again he 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 just he just uh has a knack of picking things that that go you know and uh we didn't i didn't know what katie i i knew her from the word and i knew her as a journalist but i didn't know she was a performer and she of course she came her career was started out as a performer she 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 worked with the pet shop boys and uh early on when she came over from the states and she's a brilliant front woman she just shocked everybody she was great absolutely yes great. Yeah, so you've got happy. that tour in the spring have you got any other projects coming up for 2020 uh, well i i be i get asked to do a lot of uh uh, a Bowie related things and a lot of I in the last few years I've met a lot of Bowie's mo- more famous alumni you know Carmen Rojas and Earl Slick and Mike Garson and Omar Hakim and Carlos Alomar and uh, and these people revolve around a lot of a lot of activity revolves around Bowie centric events and things like that and I get asked to do them so I am doing a Bowie con in Liverpool next year I did one in New York this year and um a car mines asked me to go and do a project in in uh in europe and lust for life is coming up i think for two stints there'll be march in uh in england and i think there's a european tour planned for later in the year apart from that i do not know i i, I again i just take life as it comes these days i'm 66 coming up 66 years old so uh i have to be pick and choosy about the amount of work i do now I don't yes. want to start on the road for three or four months anymore. <laughs> I know. A couple of weeks is enough. Well, actually, Neil, Niels Lofgren, 
I remember he was coming to the Theatre Royal and I, I did this interview and he's, he actually gets um, homesick. He's He only wants to be away for three weeks. And he yeah, says, well, I have a lovely house here and we have a lovely garden and I love living by the coast and, uh, you know, very nice settled life and uh, uh, it, it's great. And so I, I like I like coming home too. I, I'm, I'm not a city boy anymore. I, I lived in London for 37 years and every time I go back now, I just kind of like, it's a bit of a head fuck and I just go, well, I want to get out to out by the beach again. <laughs> so inevitable yes. result of getting old i think but uh, uh but i still love to play in front of people there's no doubt about it i still play a couple of hours a day and i'm still developing as a musician and i, I will never stop that i'm working on some solo material again too i had an album out in 2019 called run and i've got i'm sort of two thirds to three quarters of the way through a new collection of songs for release as well i'm not putting a date on that but i because i like to get everything right um but that, that's what i'm doing so i'm still i still have a an urge to create and I still have an urge to go and play in front of people. Yes. And do you feel with that, you know, the, the Bowie kind of world that's happened, everyone, you know, who's played with Bowie, a lot of them have got their kind of like little scenes going on. Do you, do you sort of feel sometimes a bit conflicted with it? You know, who's. Well, I think everybody does, but as long as, I mean, some people, some, you know, from the very unkind end of the spectrum, one could say, oh, it's just, you know, you're just uh, cashing in on, uh, uh, you know, this brief encounter with David Bowie I had a, I had over a 10 year period or whatever. And, uh, uh, and people are cashing in on their association with him. He's long gone. But, you know, but on the other hand, if you're in the room with Mike Garson and Corey Glover's singing Diamond Dogs and and we're all playing and it's Carmine and Alan Childs and Mike Garson and me and and. Uh, uh, and you you feel the love from the audience and you feel the love that we have for that music yes. to make it. you just think that this this really is a celebration of some of something and it, he might be gone but these are the these are the things we cling to and I, so it's not there's no i've never had the remotest impression that anybody's exploiting anything other than the love for what happened to us and what and and him Yes, I, I, yeah, and sharing I that with sharing that with an audience is very happy. It's a very happy experience to do that. Yes, and when we listen to classical music, obviously the composer's long gone, and it doesn't. You know, we're not sure. I mean, I, I, I where I take issue is, you know, sometimes I, I see uh, tribute bands which have got no connection to the original artist, and they've got some pantomime guy in a wig up front singing, and you just think, no, I, that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> that's not it i really like to you know that if there's if there's a ring of authenticity and it's the people who were there and the people are still sharing that that creative spark that they they helped yes then that's, that's people want to see that and share it and there's a lovely bit you do put in the book about dennis davis the drummer who mm. who fell on hard times and david picked up his medical bill i believe and I've, yeah I've, and that's quite a, a really amazing thing. Typical to... of David, I think. I think he was a very, you know, he, that that's that's the thing that people, yeah, rock stars don't have. They're the, rock stars are obsessed with themselves, aren't they? They're very solipsistic. They're narcissistic. They talk about themselves. They write about themselves. They care about every. But also, you get the occasional people who are just really generous, lovely human beings. You know, you'd count Dolly Parton among those, wouldn't you? And David yes. Bowie was certainly one of those. He really cared about people. Yes, this is this is all true. So, look, just last question because um, it, I, you know, loved going through the book. I mean, if you could have whispered some to your sixteen-year-old self starting out, is there anything in particular that you would have just mentioned or whispered in their ear, even if that person ignored mm -hmm. it? Yeah, I'd say don't try so hard, you know, or don't worry. Because <laughs> I used to worry. I mean, a life as a musician is a hard 
thing. You never know where your next crust is coming from for many, many years. And uh, that that's an that can that can make you really anxious and it make can make your decision making skewed or whatever. So I just say, don't worry, be yourself, learn your craft. If you learn your craft at something, no one can ever take that away from you. Yes, this is true, actually. And um, yeah, that's great. And I, yes, 66, I guess you get your heating allowance as well now, don't you? <laughs> I think I get my pension soon. <laughs> yes. Which is <laughs> Which is, yes, it's a whole nother world. No, I can't it? complain about any anything that has happened in my life. I'm very grateful for for the career music I've had. And thank you for your... your yes, uh, well, look, thank you for the yeah. book. This has been amazing. And uh, it seems been brilliant. And so, yes, I'm really appreciative. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you. you. How, far, how far through the book are you? You've gone, you've gone through the whole thing, have you? Well, I've nearly... <laughs> oh yeah you're near the end i can see where post pop post pop yes so um, it is. but then i was thinking oh it's not too bad because i probably saw you around that time when you were doing <laughs> i'm not sure if you mentioned richard in that and lou reed but um i don't think i i'm not sure i did actually you know it's a bit a bit remissive but uh, you know not everything could go in i mean there's another book really that of stuff i left out you know that there's a real tourette's version of <laughs> yes <laughs> one day i might do if i really don't care Yes, this is true. But the lovely, I know it's been fantastic. Anyway, look, have a lovely evening and um, yeah, take Thank care. You. Thank you Thanks again, for Kevin. Being late again and uh, enjoy talking to you, David. Yeah, take care. Thank Cheers. Bye bye. And that was me in conversation with Kevin Armstrong, who's got a new book out titled Absolute Beginner The Memoirs of the World's Best Least Known Guitarist. This is available on Jawbone Publishing and um, obviously you can get it online and also available from all good bookshops. Uh, do check it out. It's a very good read, especially with Christmas coming up. Anyway, look, this has been the C86 Show, David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Um, yes, and uh, do keep it positive and groovy, please. Otherwise, I'll cry. And all these interviews have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe.